recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 258 is recorded live October 1st, 2015. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the state of Michigan where we're starting to get a little crispness in the air. Joining me this week on his way to being ready to dive soon, at least hopefully, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How you doing, Mac? I'm glad to be here. At least I got some bit of a voice back that I didn't have last week, so we'll yeah. stick around for a while. Yeah, you're sounding good. Yeah, Last week, I apologize for everybody who... Uh, needed a longer show for their drive time i ripped through it i i did the show i think all edited down and put together it was about a little less than 40 minutes so that was pretty quick it was kind of a light news week and i didn't have a lot to talk about so we'll make up for it i think we got a little bit uh, more articles this week the chat room is full and i and i think it might be because it's getting darker a little earlier forcing people inside well, I know the Thursday Thursday dive, uh, you're already using lights if you're going to go on it, period. I know we did start in the daytime, then it was dark when you got out. Now it's dark when you're starting. Yes. yes, it is. It's getting dark. I uh, Right before the show, I went upstairs, and I didn't have any lights on up there. Normally when I go up, I can still see. It was pitch black. I stumbled for the light switch. Uh, but thank everybody who came into the chat room tonight. We have uh, Wheaton Diver, Vanessa the Mermaid, uh Max, actually, in the, di- in the chat room, too. Uh, St. Louis Sam, Surfer George, a couple guests have popped in. And we're still evaluating chat rooms. I think what we're going to do is we're going to probably do another chat room tool. So keep a watch. And, and maybe if you want to be on the beta, let me know. We may beta it one week. I'm, I might do double chat rooms to try it out. Or maybe you show up to the chat room and we'll send you a link to the beta of the other chat room. And I, and I think I'm getting close to doing a video podcast. It might be right after the first of the year we'll be doing a video. So we might go to, I'm thinking, two or three episodes of audio, and then and then we'll do at least one video. I've, and uh, the video is probably going to be 30 to 60 minutes, and then at the same time we do that video, we'll do uh, maybe some five- and ten-minute episodes on different topics. But let's go ahead and jump right on into the news, we have a few articles. This first one is talking about, uh, it's a follow-up, supporters of the sunken British Columbia ship. They say they're being buoyed by fishy visitors. Officials of the Artificial Reef Society of British Columbia say the seafloor is adapting well six months after the sinking of the decommissioned Canadian warship Howe Sound north of Vancouver. HMCS Annapolis went down amid controversy and Halleck Bay off uh, Gambrier Island in April, ending years of legal battle from critics who argued the paint in the ship's hull contained toxic chemicals. Howard Robinson, the president of the Artificial Reef Society, says those worries appeared unfounded and the ship is living up to its environmental goals. Rockfish stocks have been declining in Georgia Straits, but Robinson says these, that some of the small spiny fish have already been spotted nosing around Annapolis. 
says the old ship is becoming increasingly popular with divers, closing the loop in a circle route for scuba fans that includes the HMCS Claudier in uh, Shashit Inlet and several ships in Nanamio. And all artificial reef society has sunken seven vessels in British Columbia waters. So I guess what they're saying is that fish are finding the wreck. And uh, an aspect about the toxic chemicals, well, if it appears to be growing vegetation and becoming a home, it appears that's not going to be an issue. Yeah. Now, like we talked, lead's always a concern, but from what I understood it with lead in the paint, is it's the concern is that the paint chips off and then animals ingest that. I, I, that's that's got to be my understanding because other than that, it's going to float, to the, or not float, it's going to be deposited on the bottom as a heavier item. So yeah. unless they're talking about the fragments of it becoming you know, friable like, like a asbestos in suspension and something eating it, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know I, the kids nibble on the sides. I don't know if the uh, animals nibble on it. Well, I know in, uh, my, my father was working on the Milwaukee Clipper up in Muskegon uh, helping redo that boat. They had to paint the side. And they spent a great expense uh, tarping the sides of the boats to collect all the chips as they would sandblast. And that makes sense because you're actually uh, turning it into a, a particle that at least for a while would be uh, suspended in solution. But a hull that's already painted, even if it was lead, I'd be surprised if that, if that would come off and, and contaminate. It, it couldn't be worse than lead lures that are already there. Well, they, that's just like last week when the cocoon, the uh, lighthouse. Yeah. Do the sanding. It's just something you're not going to deliberately put items like that in the water or the atmosphere. Yeah, if you can avoid it, uh, it makes sense. And what Max talking about is if, if you happen to be in St. Joe this summer, you would see that the, the lighthouse, we have this famous lighthouse. You see it a lot of pictures. Photographers like to take pictures of it when it's covered in ice. And it's a, got a raised catwalk, and it goes out to a main lighthouse. And then there's the catwalk continues and goes out to a beacon. Uh, like a, you'd have a low house and a high house for ships to line up as they came in. And they're refurbishing it, so they're painting it. And it seemed like they just had painted it a few years before, so I don't understand how it got so bad so quick again. Oh, they're doing more of a total inside and out, and they're also trying to make it to the point that they all be able to, my understanding is, charge people to use the catwalk to go in and look around and do the pictures because that'll be unique and use that money to maintain and help keep that at a higher pristine level. You know, I kind of like that idea because you can still enjoy the pier and the catwalk, not the cat, well, but the, the, the pier and the lighthouse from outside without paying. You just have to pay if you're going to get the catwalk, which would be the way you'd get in. And the cat, that's going to be a long walk on that catwalk. Yeah. I, I still want to see how are they, how are they going to put a lot of rails on it? Are they going to change it? Because you can't, you can't count on that rail system to keep kids from falling. It, it would not pass the standard of today mm-hmm. on the side. So how they're going to do that, I have no clue at this point. Yeah. Well, I could see it passing like an OSHA. If you're a lighthouse keeper, uh, you could attach a, you know, tie-off. You'd have double tie-offs like if you're climbing high, and it seems like that would work. Yeah. And as a side note, they did South Haven also. That's in progress now. Oh, South Haven is doing as well. I don't remember South Haven being as bad as St. Joe's was. It's not near as big. It's not just doesn't go out as far, and it's smaller. And, uh, and I'm intentionally stalling because I can't get this next article to even come up. Did it come up for you? Uh, I don't find out. Oh, the environmental? Well, you know, people like to talk about the environmental aspects and are we concerned with it. I thought this was an interesting one when they talked about the uh, Florida airboaters on the losing end of the fight with the National Park Service to 
continue enjoying their hobby in the Everglades. The national director, uh, regional director for National Parks Conservation Association says, Everglades Park is not just a backyard for a few local folks. He believes the Everglades require congressional protection. He said airboats allowed noise machines that run through the Everglades, carrying the birds out of their nests, leaving preferential pathways for water flows that wouldn't naturally be there. And that's one version. Uh, when you look at the, um, the write-up, they'll have the other version, meaning, you know, what do the other people think? And so, it came up in mind really quick. So what they're saying is that they don't want the airboats out there at all. Correct. They're loud, noisy machines that can run through the Everglades, scare birds in their nests. And they leave pathways for waterfowl that wouldn't naturally be there. Well, the, the, there's, and if you look, and, uh, and I sort of did Google a little bit, look at some of the, uh, the boat organizations down there in Florida. And like they said, they basically took care of the Everglades before the Park Service was there. You know, they, their comment was, why not make us custodians of the Everglades? We were doing it before the National Park Service was there. Well, uh, well, correct. And also, uh, many parts of the Everglades are actually navigable. Yeah. So. I don't see it being totally one way or the other. You know, I, I would hate to see, you know, highway traffic volume of boats going through there. and But I think if you had some reasonable people operating the boat charters, you're sticking to certain paths, maybe you set certain areas if you're that concerned. You know, well, say that this. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, yeah, was going to say, you know, because you could say, okay, this section we're not going to put airboats in for whatever reason, but then this one we can, because we have proven that one of the ways to really maintain and protect the environment is through ecotourism. So if you deny people the ability to go in there and appreciate what's going on, especially with airboats, because airboats gets, you know, city slickers and landlubbers a way of getting into the Everglades and being able to appreciate them. And if you prevent that, that they're, they're just not going to be able there to go and see it. Plus that's an income. Uh, uh, and, they're talking about noisy. I'm, I'm curious the difference then, does that mean motorboats are okay? Paddle boats are okay? Hydroplane boats are okay? You know what I'm saying? Is it the noise or is it the type of propulsion? Well, how about jets? The aspect of a propeller going through that. Is that any different? Uh, jets so, from an there, airplane? Just noise. Yeah. You get the Everglades there near NASA. You don't want sp uh, sp rockets going up because it's noisy. Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit to this. And the next one we've got is uh, keeping herbicides, or they're not saying keeping them out of Lake Tahoe. They're saying that they're going to use herbicides in Lake Tahoe to keep it blue. Now, maybe we're going to get some feedback here from, you know, a couple of people we know that are on the air right now that are going to dive Tahoe. Do they have any feedback on this, or have they heard about this? Yeah, so what, what it looks like it's going to go on is they have a problem with Eurasian milfoil, which is an invasive species. And for those who aren't really familiar with it, it's a green needle mass that grows very quickly. It's evasive. And what they're saying is that in this body of water, Lake Tahoe, it's about 5,001 non-native to native species. They said if they don't do anything, speedboats would have a hard time even navigating the, the water. They said the whole body of water be covered in plants. This is according to, uh, let's see if we get his name, uh, Anderson. Do they have his first name? Anderson says we couldn't even get a boat out. Well, the pictorial that the guy has here looks like he's got a flat-bottom pontoon, and he's standing on a deck, and you can see the, 
the milfoil there, the aquatic weeds. That's what it was like at uh, Pawpaw until they used that new program they had for the last five years to eradicate them. So are they talking about using the same chemical here in Lake Tahoe that Pawpaw uh, used? I, I don't know the type they were talking about. Yeah, because they're saying Tahoe Keys is a man-made. Oh, that's a housing complex they're talking about there. They said when we first moved out to the the uh, Tahoe Keys, you could see hundreds of kids swimming in Lake Tahoe Key canals. Now you wouldn't let your dog swim in there. If we didn't have Tahoe Keys, there wouldn't be an, an invasive species issue. They said milfoil also sheltered other invaders, such as bluegill, largemouth bass, and gargantuan goldfish. So not only have the keys been overrun, but it's become a locus of invasion for the entire lake. Scientists think that boaters accidentally introduced milfoil to nearby Emerald Bay State Park, among other sites. In recent years, California's drought has encouraged the plant's growth by reducing lake levels and, absor and exposing more habitat. So the, the, as it gets shallower, more of the bottom is exposed to the lights that encourages it to grow. And they also have another problem with curly leaf pondweed. They said that's spreading. They said sooner or later, they'll have to move out of the Keys and find suitable habitat in other places. Lake majors are considering more aggressive tactics to control the invasion. The Tahoe Keys Property Owners Association, a residential community of 1,500 homes, spends $400,000 annually on harvesting, including floating mowers to remove the plants. But the harvesters haven't succeeded. In fact, they actually promote milfoil spread by creating plant fragments that settle and establish elsewhere. That's what I was wondering, is, is that weed, if you chop it up, that's just like cuttings for any for a plant. It's just going to root someplace else. Yeah, you almost have to cut it and suck it through a strainer. Yeah. And bring it up on the back of a barge to collect it. Yeah, and then you take it and then they clamshell it out to a dump. But again, that makes the uh, cost go up considerably. Yeah, because they say they also use mechanical strategies such as harvesting, where scuba divers pull up the plants. They have bottom barriers, mats that block sunlight. Uh, they're also relying on chemical control. So the plan mentions five uh, photosyllabic options, such as imazamox, penicillium, which I'm, I'm assuming are uh, herbicides. Potential herbicides of using this project range from slightly toxic to fish down to partially non-toxic, or practically non-toxic. The two lowest categories. When it comes to mammals, it's largely the same thing. Turnbow adds that the herbicide concentrations will be low enough and dilute rapid enough to keep the odds of dangerous human exposure vanishingly small. If a monitor suggests herbicide may escape the Keys canals and enter the rest of the lake, giant currents can be lowered to contain the chemical flow. Well, two items I'd like to know, really, if any of the guys who are diving Tahoe tonight are on the board, how deep is it? And the second item, even though we're talking about the vegetation, you'll also notice that Tahoe had the issue with uh, mussels. So the second question I would pose is, the people who are out there diving at Tahoe, do they have those clean stations at the uh, boat entry points? And is it required for them to clean the boats before and after they get in and out? Yeah, this article goes on. It looks like there's even a point where there's a bunch of people who are against the, the poisoning of the lake. Now, is Lake Tahoe drinking water? I mean, I think with California being in the drought that they're in. Well, it was also why I was curious of how deep it was. Yeah. Well, how, how much is the, they talk about it with the water being lower that there's more bottom exposed. How has it gone from the sides? If you had a, a house with a, with a dock, is a dock a way away from the water? I, I really don't know myself. 
Wow. It says it's a little over 1,600 feet deep. How much? 1,600 feet. So the second question to me is, what is the slope angle on the majority of it? Mm. And the reason I ask that is, the deeper you go, the less, you know, like our um, crack and muscle, not crack and muscle, but our uh, weed line there, like our lakes is normally a thermocline, anywhere between 20 and 25 feet max. So that would give you an idea of how much surface area you'd actually have to harvest if you had a sharp drop-off, you know what I mean? Yeah, you'd, you'd have less area because there'd be less in that right. habitable zone where the right. plants would so, grow. So I was curious about that. The second part is, what is the normal bottom like? Because you're not going to have the quaggas on the bottom if there's nothing to eat. So I don't know what the bottom is, and if it's that deep, I don't think you're going to have a lot of uh, life forms that going to enable the quaggas to survive. Yeah, unless you've got a lot putting nutrients into the water, it's going to be hard for them, especially to get that deep. What's the deepest in Lake Michigan we have seen quaggas? Uh, at the bottom, which is over... 800 feet. You, well, they, it's 950-something feet. Uh, there actually was a survey I was looking at done by uh, U of M with their submersible a couple of years ago, and they actually hit some you know, holes out there that are over 1,000 feet. And they were actually found in Quaggas every place. Yeah. Have you been to Midway Airport? Have I been to Midway? Yeah. Mid- I have not utilized it lately. Midway Airport, if you go through, now that they've got the nice security checkpoints, it's hard to really see it. But over the end of the main security checkpoint, the center of the airport, is a topographical plastic mold that represents Lake Michigan. Yeah. They got one of Pawpaw. Uh, yacht Club, too. Yeah. Papa and, Lake Yacht Club. And, and this is, you know, it's 40 feet by 15 feet or something. It's it's huge, and it's nice to be able to see it because you can visualize and, and see the deep pockets that there are, and of course, according to whatever numbers they pulled and, and made the, the chart off of. But that's that's interesting to see if you have opportunity. And we have a state that's uh, talking about poisoning ponds to get rid of introduced fish. So it's in that same ballpark. Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife is beginning the process, and it was this Monday, to poison fish in 10 ponds around the state. And so that the goal is to be able to get the ponds in conditions where they can be restocked with trout, species like brown bullhead catfish, smallmouth bass, black uh, crappie, and goldfish have been illegally introduced over the years. They've multiplied and have crowded crowded out the trout. This is according to Jessica Saul, who's with the Oregon Fish and Wildlife. For many people, trout is preferred fishery. These other fish outcompete trout for food, and they can affect water quality as they dig around the bottom looking for food so they can make it more difficult for trout to survive. Saul said the EPA approved fish toxicants called uh, rotenone is mixed in the pond water is not harmful to humans or other mammals or birds. Bill uh, Bach with the Native Fish Society says he supports the plan. It's time the state takes action to start removing these animals from our waters. Ponds will be treated over the next few weeks. They are uh, Luger, Boundary, Peach Ponds in Union County, Keyhole, Granite Meadows, Meadows, Goldfish, Yellow Jacket, Windy Spring Ponds in Umaltala County, if I got that one right, Kinney Lake in Wallowa, County and Ball Reservoir in Baker County. They'll remain closed to the public for four weeks for detoxification. If they're not 
Well, I, I guess maybe there might be other reasons. But if it's not toxic, why would you have to close it to the public? Well, it... I've seen this done in Alabama before. Uh, stationed down there years and years ago. One of the areas I lived in, they detoxed one of the, the large ponds. And what they did prior to that is they, they introduced a little bit of the deoxygenator, basically. And then they said, open house to anybody to catch any fish, any way, any quantity. Oh, that'd be cool. If nothing else, a lot of those fish were edible. And even if you didn't eat them, you could grind them up and make them fish food or food for your cats, dogs, animals, and or fertilizer. One thing I've always wanted to try is the way that my dad used to fish in the containment ponds at the nuclear plants. And that's the electric probe in the water. He said they put that probe in the water, hit a switch, and then all the fish would just float to the surface. They weren't dead. They were just... And it's a lot less... A lot less noisy than explosives also. Well, the explosives, I think, would be more fun. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the the problem with explosives, I think, is that anything that you bring up that way isn't surviving. <laughs> yeah. So they also had another fish die off. This one, they're saying, is non-intentional. And it was a California lake, Walker Lake in California, went dry overnight. Thousands of fish were dead after Northern California Reservoir ran dry. This was last week. Mountain Meadows Reservoir, known as Walker Lake, was a popular fishing hole just south of Susanville. The reservoir is dry and all the fish dead. Residents tell CBS Sacramento that people were fishing in the lake just Saturday, but drained it like a bathtub overnight. Resident Eddie Bauer said he lived near the lake his entire life. He says this is the first time he's ever seen the lake run dry. He and other residents now want answers as to why and how this could have happened. CBS Sacramento reports Pacific Gas and Electric, who own the rights to the water and the use for hydroelectric power. It's a situation we worked hard to avoid, but the reality is we are very serious drought and there are concerns about the fish downstream. Bauer tells CBS Sacramento there should have been at least two weeks of water left. He says there would have been enough time to relocate the fish. It makes me feel like they didn't want to do a fish rescue and it was just easier to open the sucker up Saturday night. PG&E officials tell uh, CBS that no one opened the dam up. They said the water just ran out. The reservoir all continued to be far below normal. This said Doug Carlson with the Department of Water Resources. He said there's no question water concerns are still a very serious issue across the state. We are relying upon rainfall to fill those lakes and concourse until we get more rain. We're not likely to see any appreciable increase in reservoir levels. How many fish do you think there are in those in that photo? All you know is... There's two aspects. One, that's going to be really uh, pugnant. He had a little odorous. To say the least. Yeah. And I'm curious, well, all that decay, and if it does reflood, what's that going to do to the water? I mean, you got fish die, but not all of them at once. Yeah, I don't know. that. I mean, hopefully this dries out to little chunks before it gets re-moistened. And I doubt anybody's going to go up and clean it up. Well, I bet the birds really liked it. If you're anywhere near, you got some nice seagulls or mm-hmm. that kind of... Well, they had a lot of seagulls. And then about half a day later, a lot of flies. Yeah. But it kind of yeah. makes you wonder, did they not know where the bottom was? Don't know. This does not look like a what we would call a high head dam. This looks yeah. just to be... Because you look at the where it looks like there's a spillway, it doesn't seem to be more than 10, 15 feet. Of course, it's, it's hard to tell without scale. But it might not have been that large of a reservoir. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, Great Lakes officials are saying that sea lamprey numbers are down across the state. 
Populations of invasive uh, sea-killing sea lampreys have fallen to the lowest point in decades, showing that control measures costing millions of dollars a year are paying off. This is according to officials who want more money. Lamprey numbers have reached a 30-year low in Lake Huron and 20-year low in Lake Michigan, according to the Great Lake Fisheries Commission, U.S.-Canadian organization. Numbers are also down significantly in other lakes. Sea lampreys control is worth the effort and is a foundation of the fishery we enjoy today, said Robert Heckley, chairman of the commission. Before control, sea lampreys caused major economic and ecological harm. Today's fish communities are on the rebound. The fishery is worth $7 billion annually to people of Canada and the United States. A lamprey is an eel-like creature that uses its suction cup mouth and sharp teeth to fasten itself onto other fish and suck out bodily fluids. Divers have been known to be sucked dry by them. I added that part, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the, the average lamprey kills up to 40 pounds of fish in its lifetime. I think the only thing scarier than seeing a lamprey on a fish is one not on a fish. Uh and how their life cycle is, is they go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes through the shipping canals. And they're originally introduced in the late 30s. And it's a, it's a cycle. So they hatch in the rivers, they go out to the ocean, and they come back in. Uh, they said the turning point in managing them was a poison that they developed that kills the lampreys in the larval stage as they develop in the rivers. Uh, barriers and traps have also been effective. The barriers uh, tend to be uh, an open mesh where fish can swim through. And the lampreys that are attached to the side get zapped, kind of like a bug zapper for lampreys. They said the Lake Huron's lamprey population, once the largest of the Great Lakes, has dropped from 440,000 in the early 1990s to 69,000, an 85% decline. Commission spokesman Mark Gaydon said population estimate is 80,000 Lake Superior, 27,000 Lake Michigan, 24 in Lake Ontario, and 10,000 Lake Erie. How's Lake Erie have the least? It seems like being closer to the ocean it would have more well it's the shallowest it also freezes over yeah more quickly than the other ones and thicker yeah now do, do lampreys they move like all the way from the ocean up is it like salmon they do it in a single season or do they just kind of meander wherever i don't know really their nature but i do know that this year uh, the guys doing the thirsty thursday dives and on the weekend at the river lately have not talked about seeing any lampreys this year Whereas last year we saw a bunch of them. Yeah, well, that's what I was kind of wondering. Is when is when I saw this article, I'm like, "What are you talking about?" We saw, I hadn't seen any in years. I, I had seen you would occasionally catch a fish and see scars where they had had something bit on the side and must not have latched. But uh, here we are. They're you're, they're saying that they're actually down. In the U.S., we spend about 14 million a year on lamprey control. Canada spends about seven million a year. I would say that $14 million, a lot of it's got to be in in Michigan. Well-spent money, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. Yep, they, that one I like next. Yep. They are an invasive species. Yeah. And the next one is, in the chat room, they're asking, I think I'll talk about microbeads again. Well, not quite microbeads, but styrofoam eating, was it some mealworms? Yes, mealworms. Wow. It, it was really quite interesting because plastic's long been considered non-biodegradable. You know, that's what everybody says. It doesn't, you know, last forever, same like glass. Well, not necessarily true because uh, they're, they're, they're saying that the, um, these little brown, squishy mealworms can live on a diet of styrofoam and other types of plastic. And they said inside the mealworms' gut are microorganisms that are able to biodegrade polyethylene. 
which is freaking amazing. That is. So somebody's going to look at this and figure out how can I have a startup company and capitalize on this. Well, let's say say you you had ability to collect all this that they're capable of eating. You feed them to this. What can you do with the end result? Well, the the key item is uh, they were doing 100 mealworms that concern uh, consume 34 and 39 milligrams of styrofoam, which is the weight of a pill every day. And then they wanted to what the health of the the, the mealworms were, and they saw the larva ate a diet subsisting strictly of styrofoam, were as healthy as as worms eating a normal diet of bran. And they, they found the mealworms transformed the plastic into carbon dioxide, warm biomass, and biodegradable waste. And the waste seemed to be able to be used in soil for planting and crops. Hmm. Now, that sounds like a freaking win-win. It, it almost sounds too good to be true. Uh, but uh, we've seen this before. They, they, have, they have engineered, and we say engineered, a lot of it just selective breeding, uh, bacteria that's been able to digest oils or gas uh, products. Well, they got cockroaches can, that they've, you know, done some management and work on those that can consume plastic, but they've not shown to be biodegradable like mealworms. Yeah, because a, a lot of times you might be able to ingest it, but you're just pooping out smaller pieces of plastic. You're not really changing it. You're just able to pass it through the system. Now, they were saying the mealworm's gut has a weird bacteria in it, and if you feed the mealworm's antibiotics and then the plastic, the plastic is not degraded. So whatever... Uh, what they're having in their gut, once they figure that out, if they could synthesize it, you yeah. might have a product that you could mix yeah. with styrofoam and produce good stuff. Yeah, and, and the mealworm is the larvae of the darkling beetle, which is a common insect that can be found in many pet stores in the United States. I actually would raise uh, mealworms as fish for uh, as fish food. I, I would raise oscars and cichlids, and you know, I would I would feed I fed them potatoes and oatmeal. So I'd have these big shoe boxes full of potatoes and oatmeal, and you'd you'd throw the beetles in there, and they would lay the worms, and the worms would eat, and you just kept your cycle going, so you always had a an inexpensive supply of food. And I'm told, and I I never tried it myself, but you could also eat them. In the United States, we produce about 33 million tons of plastic every year. Less than 10 percent of that is cycled, and the mealworm would be a nice way of of attacking that if it would work. That'd be a pretty big mealworm farm. Well, especially if you had microbeads, which are plastic, and you could get those somehow able to embed into a product that the mealworms would eat, you could help take care of that. Well, you could do that. You could uh, do some sort of filter material, you know, take a fibrous, and, and we've got a lot of biomass type of products. You could take, uh, you know, corn stalks, stalks, and you could probably flatten that and, and make it into some sort of uh, filter media that would capture uh pl- smaller sizes of plastics yeah and then we've got that's not the article i thought i was going to okay water levels water levels is what i'm looking for here let's paste and go again so michigan we've had water levels have been have have felt higher than normal where it was tough in the rivers to get out and boat ramps are pushed a little bit farther into the water they said that Great Lakes uh, water levels are up. All the Great Lakes continue to be above average water levels. Lake Michigan in Huron is down two inches in the last month. The level is six inches in the last year and is now seven inches above average September water levels. Lake Superior is down one inch in the last month. 
down one inch in the last year and six inches above average September water levels. Lake Erie is down four inches last month, but is still seven inches above water level of one year ago. Erie is 12 inches above the average September level. Ontario is down nine in the last month, six in the last year, is now four inches above average. September levels, Lake St. Clair is also quite high, despite losing two inches in the last month. St. Clair is up six inches last year and now 12 inches above levels for September. St. Mary, Niagara, St. Lawrence will be continue to have above average flows. The St. Clair and Detroit River should also continue to have above average flows. Uh, let's see, so some current flow numbers for cubic feet per second compared to the uh, median flow. Grand River and Grand Rapids is 2,100 cubic feet per second. Kalamazoo River in New Richmond is 1,450 cubic feet per second. So we got water and California doesn't. Yeah. Now we are down a little bit over last year, but we're still up above our historic averages. So what's it been about the last, at least the last two years it's been up. Was it I've, and it was that really that ice cover that helped us, which I didn't realize that we we lose most of our water during the winter months. Yeah. That goes in the lake effect. Now, this last little bit makes me think we might lose a lot of water this winter because they're saying that, well, water levels may be higher than normal. The lake temperature is also higher than normal. Great Lakes water temperatures continue to be warmer than recent trends, significantly warmer than one year ago, according to National Weather Service in Gaylord. Average water temperatures in Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, currently largely in the mid to upper 60s, near 70 degrees. This according to National Weather Service. One year ago, average water temperature on Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, were in the 50s and lower 60s. Average water temperature in Lake Superior currently is largely in the 50s to near 60 degrees. One year ago, the water temperature in Lake Superior were in the 40s and 50s. And, and last year... Surface water temperatures. Right, right. And if you look at that chart, of course, it's all in how you statistically determine the colors, but it is significantly warmer. And I, in the diving I've done uh, this late summer, it does seem a lot warmer. These are what I would consider to be July and August temperatures we've had in September. And a lot has to do with the type of storms and the upwellings to have had this recirculated water in the shallows. We haven't, I the diving I've done in the this, this last half of the season, I haven't seen a lot of sharp thermoclines. Uh, the water temperature's been pretty close to the same temperature most of the way down. And the visibility has sucked. It has sucked bad. Uh, I don't know, did you, did, I think, I, I don't think I've talked to you since I did my last dive. So, yeah, but I've heard about them all, let me tell you. <laughs> you got your finger on it. Well, I haven't updated the club site because I refuse to until I get more pictures from everybody who's been out there diving. Once I get some pictures, which I have been promised, I will update it for the whole month of September and... You, you, uh, may, you may have to scrape some people's Facebook pages to get them. I know Jim posted some from uh, the Northern Dive today. Yeah, but they weren't, they're a little dark. But yes, I'm working on him to give me some good stuff and the same from Bob. Bob planned on making some videos, and if we can do some snippets, we'll put those in the club site. Yeah, we should be able to capture some stuff, whether he likes it or not. And then here's something that was interesting, a little short video, and it's kind of hard to to figure out exactly what they're showing, but it, it appears that in uh, Australia they had a sinkhole appear along a beach. Scuba divers explored the inside of a massive coastal sinkhole in Australia, realizing the footage shows the destruction beneath the water, the hole which formed 
Inskip Point near Fraser Island, Queensland on Sunday, sucked in a car, a camping trailer, a caravan, and as the earth opened up, it thought to be at least three meters deep and led to hundreds of people being evacuated from the region. And do you see that picture? It's like somebody yeah, took a big... As soon as you started saying it, sucked in a car and stuff, it's like, maybe I don't want to die there yet. <laughs> yeah, let's let it settle down. And you look at the photo from the air, and it's like there's a chunk, like a shark took a chunk out of that end of this peninsula. Scientists have disputed using the term sinkhole, according to Stephen Fidius, the professor in geotechnical engineering at the University of Newcastle. It's very unlikely that missing sand has been swallowed into some deep hole in the seafloor, but is more likely a landslide. Despite the dangerous situation, some Australians made the most of the new swimming hole, with scuba divers from Wolf Rock Dive set up to capture the unusual underwater scene and attempt to, attempt to retrieve the vehicles. Diver Mitchell uh, Newman uh, said that the family who lost the caravan had sold everything to buy it and all their possessions were inside. Unfortunately, the retrieval didn't go as easily as planned. One towing company retrieved the camping trailer, but the second company working on working with the diver struggled to pull out the embedded caravan and car. The first exploratory dive that was visible was a major black back meter of the caravan chassis. We believe the whole car is buried as it's still hooked to the van. All we managed to save was the back bar of the van and all pieces of the van that had been ripped off. Newman believes everything in the water is intact, and two days spent on the site, divers didn't witness any linking fuel or oil. We retrieved what we could from the van, so the site is clear of debris. However, there's still going to be fluids in the car, engine oil, fuel, things like that. It shouldn't pose too much of an environmental threat as it's all sealed up. The sand will tightly packed around everything. The hole likely fill up with sand, and within a year or so, the beach will be basically back to normal. Even the trees will be visible. And 200 years from now, when they excavate that for condos, they're going to dig up this car and try to figure out where the blazes this car come from. <laughs> yeah, what was... You know, 20 feet underwater, under the dirt. Yeah, what was, where'd this come from? But I, I kind of agree with that environmentalist. It might just be that the bottom gave way and it was a landslide. Uh, it, it all depends. The sharpness of the shore. You can see how uh, it goes out from shallow to deep pretty quick. Yeah. So it, it, it's possible, but what instigated the slide? Something triggered it. Seems like if it was, I mean, well, I guess you can have a sinkhole that's fairly shallow. It would take somebody who really knew the geology of the area to know if you have that type of uh, structure. See, we have we have sinkholes in Michigan quite often. Not quite like Florida, but we have them from time to time. Oh, we, got, we had some sand holes. Remember those from last summer? People would walk on the beach, and all of a sudden, they'd disappear up to their knees in, in sand. And it's like, what? People thought it was quicksand. Remember that? No, I don't remember that one. And what a majority of it was, it had decayed wood that had finally got really enough porous that when you walked over it, the area that used to be the wood collapsed, and you went down. And they cordoned off several areas till they got a ground-penetrating radar to find out what the places was going on. Because, I mean, you can't have people walking down the beach and suddenly disappear up to their knees. Yeah, that's not... Uh, that, would, that would sort of frighten me. Would not be a good day. Right. So that we're able to find that out. But, you know, had a logical explanation, but who would have thought? Nature will do a lot of things. And then here we've got... Uh, a, a unique opportunity. I want to get your opinion on it, whether you think it's a, a good trend or not. There is a new program that takes non-certified divers beyond the cage at Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium. 
Registration is now open for the new program that allows visitors to get closer than ever to 16 sharks at Point Defiant Zoo and Aquarium. Beyond the Cage begins October 8th for visitors as young as 10. Beginning next point, visitors will be able to get into the water, and they don't even have to be certified. So let's see, some of the sharks that you're going to be able to get close to is uh, Sandbar, Sand Tiger, Reef Tip, uh, Black Tip Reef, Nurse, Wobble Gong, Sharks. Participants must successfully complete a dive in the eye-to-eye program before they can register for this experience. But certification is not required. Beyond the Cage wears dry suits and breathing masks with air supply hoses and accompanied by trained guides that take them to the bottom of the 225000 gallon tank in the South Pacific Aquarium. Prices are $80 for zoo members. 95 for non-members include zoo and aquarium admission and souvenir towels. And they have some additional pricing, which I won't read all that. Uh, hmm. You see, I wonder what those dry suits are. Those Are those, uh, it looks like DUI, looking at the logo on the side of that one. How deep are they, you think? Uh, I don't know. They're on the bottom. Wherever they're at, but they could they could just be on a little shelf. I'm gonna guess twenty feet, wouldn't you? Um, how much? Twenty feet. I I would hope not. How oh, yeah. much practice did it take a lot of people to be able to put a mask on and go down ten feet without hurting their ears? Well, that's true. And I'm looking at the kid. I, I I'd be curious of the waiver, and I'm sure I'd be curious how their insurance covered this. Yeah. I really would. Well, that's why they think they've, whatever their other program is, you have to complete first. Eye to eye. Worse eye to eye. Yeah. And the other item is, I've seen the one similar to this that used the plastic dome helmet with the pad shoulders. Yeah. Which keeps your whole head dry so you can't inadvertently come to the surface holding your breath. Yeah, that's true. To me, it would be safer, plus gives you really good visual, helps on the ears for a lot of people. I, I'm just curious. But it would be interesting to see their uh, liability aspects of this. Yeah, this is a this is a hooker rig that they're using. So, and they the photo shows the the divers or participants kneeling, and they've got a almost looks like a bike rack with a little T handle, and they're holding on to that. So it must be. I wonder don't how. Touch the, don't touch the shark. Stay here. At his side, your side. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm wondering how they're weighted. Do they overweight them? Underweight them? If you let go of that handle, do you float to the surface? Do they're, they're not wearing a. They grab, not, they grab your air hose and pull on that because that should be anchored to that harness on your on your uh, vest or something. Well, it doesn't look like uh, it's. I don't think they got a BC on, do they? I don't know, but that lady's goes over her right shoulder to the back, and then the line comes straight up. So you've got a, a tension yeah. point. Yeah. That, and, I, and I can't imagine they wouldn't have a tender. For more information, oh, that's on shark conservation. I was going to see if they had more in the program. Oh, we can look this up a little later. That'll be interesting to look up. Yeah, so the cage divers participate as young as eight, wear comfortable masks, breathing su- surface-applied air through regulators as they stand underwater a sturdy 12-foot by 4-foot cage. No diving experience necessary. The fee is $60 for zoo members, 75 for non-members, and includes admission to the zoo and souvenir towel. Well, that's in a cage that's going to be in the surface, so you're pretty much just going to bob in the water, put your head down, and look out. Then they have scuba dives for certified divers, 15 and older, that don tanks, swim into the aquarium with a trained diver guides up close to the sharks. That's 105 for zoo members, 120 for non-members. Includes admission to the zoo and souvenir towel. You know, I would do that. You know, it, it might, Dave's done the one down there in Florida with his boy. 
Yeah, I would. Uh, well, I, and it was it uh, Jim Schultz had. I think he did the one where the yeah. the Epcot. I mean, it would be it'd be unique, yeah. unique experience. Eye to eye shark dive program and its educational message is an integral part of Point Defiant Zoo and Aquarium Shark Conservation Effort program. Participants are asked to sign a pledge they will take personal action to help protect the sharks. Proceeds from holiday light recycling program and individual visitor contributions have benefited the International Union of Conservation of Nature's Shark Specialist Groups in determining the status of sharks in the Pacific Northwest. Just trying to see if they gave us some any indication of how deep it was. So if you happen to know, drop us a line. You can get a hold of us at the show at scubaobsessed.com. And if you don't hear from me in a week, like you sent something, I it, it just got lost. Sometimes they can get stuck in spam. So go ahead and drop us a line again. And then we have the, and I know how to pronounce this if I'm not doing the show, but it always seems to throw me off. Antithakira? Antithakira? Sounds good to me. Believe we're we're going to go with that. A shipwreck is continuing to yield new finds. If you remember, this is a 2,000-year-old Greek shipwreck, and that's where they had the Antithakira device, which was a a computer thought to be way beyond the capabilities of uh, the human population at the time, which can predict the locations of planets. So even though people had said that they, they thought the Earth was the center of the universe, they were still able to predict where planets would be. So they're going back and diving on the wreck. If you look at the photo... This is not your average uh, research diver. He's using rebreathers, and it, it's a fairly deep wreck, 160 feet on the bottom. But they found things recently like a bronze chair arm, which they say could possibly be an ancient throne. They found some Greek board games. Uh, the ship went down in 65 B.C., sits off the coast of the Greek island with the same name, discovered in 1900 by sponge fishermen holding their breath. This year, archaeological discovered an intact amphora, a vase-like container, a small table jug, a rectangular chiseled stone, probably a statue base. Digging on the seafloor, they found broken ceramics, a bone flute, pieces of glass, iron and bronze. A section of bronze furniture may have been the arm of the throne, which we already said. Shipwreck is far from exhausted, said Project Co-Director Brendan Foley, a marine archaeologist with WHOI. Every dive, it delivers a fabulous find and reveals how the 1% lived in the time of Caesar. Oh, my goodness. That makes me want to go into a political rant. Uh, Rediscovery, the first sponge diver to explore the wreck in 1900 was Ilias Sedalithis. I apologize to all the Greeks out there for slaughtering the name. He managed to bring the bronze arm from the statue of 164 feet, 50 meters to the surface. The Greek Government quickly sent naval support to the area, and divers brought up 36 marble statues of heroes and gods, along with other luxury items, skeletons belonging to the crew and passengers. In 1901, divers brought up an incredible astronomical calendar. So in 1900, they brought up uh, skeletons from 2,000 years ago underwater. Wouldn't that that be... Good question for you, all right? Yeah. When did they say the world was flat? Up until when? Oh, well, you've got, it was Galileo who, and uh, who was before Galileo? There's another one who had also fought it. But I've even, I've heard that that was a myth. So that was, a, it was Galileo, 1600s, 1500s? Well, my point being is 
this ship actually had the items such as the Astrolab, which I just made a little note. You're talking 2,000 years old, this is, which is basically a, a computer that shows your spatial time relationships. Mm -hmm. if, if you really thought the world was flat, that wasn't going to work. No. So why did we say five, 600 years ago the world was flat and you had, you know, you're going to fall off the edge of the world when 2,000 years ago we already knew that's not true? I don't know. I, I, I think don't either. It, it kind of goes to my theory that we like to make ourselves feel better by saying our ancestors are idiots. <laughs> Revisionist history. Yeah. Not that they do that here nowadays, yeah. right? <laughs> well, and, and it's possible you could have had different levels of education who didn't understand that, but I haven't heard of too many cases where people thought, you know, that, that there's probably a whole series of books on it. Yeah. Uh, but they're doing things such as 3D mapping. They're doing DNA, DNA analysis of the contents to figure out what kind of food, drink, and perfumes are inside. So uh, it's, it's a nice excuse to brag about the conditions of the finds. It'd be cool. Yeah. I'm going to use some of their wording, though. I like their wording. You know, I can apply this to stuff we're getting out of the river this last month. 50 stunning new items, including bone, ivory flute, delicate glassware fragments, meaning broken glass, ceramic <laughs> jugs, part of the ship itself, bronze armrest that could possibly be a throne. <laughs> I could, I could tie, say every one of those and use them in the stuff we found in the last month. Well, I mean, when you find a sword, isn't that a personal protection device? Absolutely. It was, it was most likely used to keep uh, robbers and cutthroats at bay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, you could, just by the pronouns and adjectives you use, you can really color something. You know, you yeah. can either make it sound like the wine bottle was thrown in by a lush or it was uh, for purely medicinal purposes. Yeah. Sort of reminds me of politicians. Yeah. We are in that season, which makes me even more jaded than my average normal self. Yeah. Well, here's a nice change. This, this one, it's, it's not quite a cat photo, but it's a dolphin photo. Sounds and, pretty fishy to me. Yeah, isn't it cute? Just a little adorable Should dolphin. Yeah, and uh, the the title of the photo is "Do Dolphins Fly?" And this dolphin, the, the photographer, who is uh, Ryan Lawler of Newport Coastal Adventure, he snapped the picture just at the right time. The the dolphin's horizontal up out of the water, and he's got to be eighteen to twenty five feet in the air. Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah, he has just got some hang time. Says it's not something we see every day. It was pretty spectacular. It was a lot of fun for our guests. And it's obvious these kind of they're having fun because mm -hmm. I've seen some whales get up there and just do belly flops. It's like I'm just having fun today. And if they can get you wet, they're even happier. <laughs> Calling me jumping in a pool. And then we have a video of the week, exclusive video of the first glowing sea turtle ever found. The new bioluminescence was something that we're in fish and worms and bugs but they hadn't observed it in reptiles before or is that amphibians reptile it's a reptile yep the first bioluminescent reptile ever recorded the critically endangered hawksbill sea turtle is the first reptile scientists have seen exhibiting bioluminescence the ability to reflect the blue light hitting the surface and remit is a different color the most common colors are green red and orange bio Fluorescence is different from bioluminescence, which an animal either produces their own light through a series of chemical reactions or a host bacteria that give off the light. Chlorofluor 
fluorescence, and recent research has found the ability in a number of fish, sharks, ray, tiny crustaceans called cepopods and the mantis shrimp, but researchers never expected to find it in a marine reptile. I've been studying turtles for a long time. I don't think everyone's ever seen this. This is really quite amazing. So what they're doing is they're saying that the body is taking light that's already there and just shifting its spectrum to where it's uh, biofluorescent. So I was thinking when I first saw it was bioluminescence. They said the marine biologists captured the turtle sighting on a video camera system whose only artificial illumination was a blue light that matched the blue light of the surrounding ocean. Yellow filter in a camera allowed the scientists to pick up fluorescent organisms. He followed the turtle for a short while, but after a few minutes let it go. I didn't want to harass it. So they were specifically looking for this. So you might you might have been with this turtle all along and not realized it was biofluorescent. They say that the biofluorescence is useful in finding and attracting prey or defense of some kind of communication. It says Gaios, in this instance, it could be a kind of camouflage for the sea turtle. Hawksbill shell is very good at concealing the animal in a rocky reef habitat during the day. So when we go to catch them, sometimes they're really hard to spot. And we will have this and other uh, in the rest of the articles in our show notes on the website. I'm running just a little bit behind, about a week or so, but I am keeping current. I did do a post last week. And how about this for some potentially cool scuba gear? And this one's heavy on the potential because it I'd doesn't like exist. What's that? I like to see the potential price. Yeah. So that's the ORB helmet. And it's being advertised as completely redefining scuba diving. And you look at it, and it looks like a high-tech, fancy motorcycle helmet. But what they're saying it, it is, and it's a concept only, heavy on the concept, it's a oxygen rebreather. And what it says is the diver carries their own source of breathing gas, and then this scrubs it. And I want to call BS on this because I don't think – this is even remotely possible in the configuration that they're saying they're trying to get here. This is purely another industrial designer trying to show off their design and material talents and not that there's anything practically possible with it. And I'm not saying that we couldn't miniaturize to a point, but there's a certain physical limitations. Anybody who's dove a rebreather realizes you have an aqualung and what that aqual, uh, not aqualung, counterlung, and what the counterlung has to do is when you breathe out, you don't want that air just to purge out of the helmet you're breathing. You want it to be contained in something so that when you take a breath in, you can breathe in that in the aqualung, and then your extra air source will fill in the gap. If you've, for some reason, purged some of the air out in your last exhale, then it will be uh, filled from your tank. So you have an oxygen tank and a dilutant. What they're saying in this design is that they've included all that plus your scrubbing material all in the helmet. And I'm telling you, I don't think that this is going to exist anytime in the future. And if it is, it's not going to be in this form. Cool idea, but BS. I doubt the guy's even a diver. Well, it's just like the uh, James Bond, where you put the bite in your mouth and you have the two little yeah. cylinders on the side. <clears throat> Along that, it sounded good. Well, I, yeah, I just watched Ocean's 13, and there's a scene where they had the acrobat who was part of their team go underwater and he had one of those james bond type devices as well yeah and i'm like that's just bs that's just because they didn't they, they just wanted to ex- make it look sci-fi or cool 
But it, I have to say, it's cool. If this something like this really worked, it would be nice. But uh, this is nothing you're going to see in the next hundred years. Well, you you can take the buddy breather tanks. Remember the baby ones? Yeah. Put dual parallel. It's going to be about five times as big, but you could get a couple of breaths shallow, but nothing that you're going to mount with the helmet. Yeah, yeah. You what? What? The only way I would begin to believe this. Because you could do you could do this as part of a rebreather if you had a backpack which was the rebreather maybe come up with a fiber tank that didn't have to be round so it was flat to your back so maybe you had a ten cubic foot uh, dilute and a ten cubic foot oxygen and then maybe have some counter lungs that were along your chest near your actual lungs maybe even do them like side mounts so where the counter lungs are along the side so you're the same depth making it easier. Then I might believe that this is actually something, but plus it doesn't. What's the purpose? What's a black mask for? I mean, if, am I am I got like sunburn? I I don't want to see things. I want to be tinted through smoke plastic. Yeah, I just think it was an excuse for somebody to show off some uh, cool industrial design. And then we have some diving events coming up. DEMA is going to be in November. The 4th through the 7th, the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Gulf Coast H2O Expo is going to be March 4th through the 6th in 2016. Wow, these are the first two of the of the season to get started. Uh, let's see. I uh, yeah, I, I you, you weren't around last week, Mac, but I did get a dive in last week. I didn't this week, but last week I dove on uh, Havana B. Yes, and that was with a dry suit that didn't leak. Mine didn't leak. Bob's didn't leak. Kirk's got a brand new dry suit. His didn't leak. He did fight with the gloves, though. Uh, he he tested his ring system at home, and then he tried to get the glove on in the boat, and he was having a problem. And the way the rings go on the suit is you kind of pinch the wrist of the of the sleeve, and then it slips the ring and he pushed it too far. So the ring that the wrist of the suit was in was the what it was in a spot, the ring where the, the glove needed to twist on and like a, a cam lock type of situation. But now that he's figured it out. It shouldn't be an issue before, but we had quite a few divers. We had uh, uh, a couple boats that aren't our normal divers, or at least in the, the divers I'm familiar with. I've seen photos of these other divers. I think they do a lot of the Thursday dives, and uh, some that have been down in Niles. But visibility was bad, Mac. Oh, man, it was, you know, six feet at best, nothing at, at worst. The surface fizz wasn't too bad, but we had a storm the night before, so it was uh, it was not surprising it was bad. Nice and toasty, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand Bob's been experimenting with more of his dry suit. Uh, last weekend he, did, he and Kurt did a dive on the Rockaway. Yep, yep. Oh, no, they didn't. They were playing on the Rockway, and they went down to Michigan City and actually did the Muskegon. Is that the Muskegon down there? Yes. Yeah. Now, I thought the Muskegon was a sand sucker, and I was looking at Indiana website, and they're saying that it was a, a different vessel. It was multiple items during multiple times. Okay, yeah. So I'll, I'll have to look again. So maybe people were picking up history that they thought was the, the sexiest at the time. But there have been people getting in the river, and they're bringing up some nice finds. Hutchies have been coming up, which they're now out hutching me. Uh, I have milk bottles, cream bottles, a lot of medicine bottles. What's the most unusual item you've heard that they've been bringing up? Uh, I think the stoneware is some of the most attractive I like to find. Uh, I mean, stoneware bottles 
and mm-hmm. stoneware. There have been several of you know, like the old pickle pickle containers. Yeah, that look like a regular jug with the top off, but it's open. Mm-hmm. I think we found three of those now in the last two weeks. Nice. In- yeah. So there's still it, it's amazing, and the condition it's coming out is is really nice and clean. Yeah, and some very nice medicines, corkers. Yeah, yeah. It's always good to find some of those. We keep looking for the gold, though. Yeah. Well, if you like to listen to the program, they got several ways you can listen. You can follow us on iTunes. Leave us those five-star reviews. We love to have those. We're on WRVO Radio, Reno Viola Outdoor Network. You can listen to us and other programs on the great outdoors, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. There's programming, uh, especially if you like fishing. They have a lot of fishing programs. And then you can also follow us on Stitcher, Stitcher Smart Radio. Type in Scuba, and that should get us right, get you right to one of our programs. We're on there every week, and the website www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Facebook, Facebook.com/scubaobsessed, and on Twitter at scubaobsessed. And you can follow us there, and we always have lots of conversations going on. Next week we will have a show. I'm going to, but between now and then, I'm going to be in California. Not diving, but attending the Adobe Max convention. So a lot of creative people, we learn how to use the tools that make this and other programs possible. Do you have anything you want to plug, Mac? No. Nah, uh, I keep saying, though, if you're going to get wet, you got to do it. It's still soft water. Actually, the river has been very, very warm. You didn't need a hood. So get out there. Because if you don't dive now, you're not going to dive in the winter. Well, let's see. Um, we're to that time of the show. And again, we'd like to thank everybody who is in the chat room. We have some diehards that have hung along. A few people have trailed off, but we have St. Louis Sam who's hung in with us. Um, and let me see. Did we miss anything as we were going along? I, I'm terrible at paying attention, but we had uh, nice conversations going on in there. Yeah, we probably had more tonight than we have in quite a while. Yeah, so we appreciate it, and let us know how you'd like to listen. So let's see. Let's switch joke. Uh, okay, this 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 is a this is a bad one. There's a tribe in Africa jungle that possessed a large golden throne. This throne was the en- envy of the surrounding tribes, and they would often conduct raids trying to steal it. Fortunately, this tribe also had a good network of spies, so they learned about the raids. Before they occurred, they would flee the village, hide among the trees, but before they left, they would put the throne up in the rafters of the chief's hut. The raiding parties never thought to look up, so they never found it. One day, word of the raid came just before nightfall. They put the throne in the rafters, hid in the jungle. After the raid, they returned to the village. Given the late hour, they didn't bother taking the throne down before going to bed. That night, it broke through the rafters, falling on the sleeping chief and killing him. The moral of the story is people who live in grass houses shouldn't stow thrones. I'm not sure if that was a moo or a boo, though. (laughs) So, until next time, make sure you go out there and get wet. And stay safe.
Call recording has been completed.